You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Rodney Reed was just days away from being executed when he got a stay from Texas's top court. Reed has been on death row for decades for the murder of Stacey Stites. He's maintained his innocence through the years, and his case has gained national attention with support from celebrities and lawmakers as diverse as Kim Kardashian and Senator Ted Cruz. Reed says a DNA test on the murder weapon, a belt that was used to strangle Stites, will prove his innocence, but the state of Texas has refused. Now, whether he's executed could hinge on a decision by the Supreme Court on a technical issue, whether he filed his appeal to the federal courts too late. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. Jordan, tell us a little bit about Reed. Rodney Reed has been on death row since 1998. He was convicted and sentenced to death for the 1996 murder of Stacey Stites, and Reed has maintained his innocence throughout in the latest issue that's brought his case to Supreme Court arguments is his attempt to get DNA testing on crime scene evidence, including the belt that strangled Stites. This crucial piece of evidence was not tested. The state has reasons that it says it thinks that testing might not show anything, but in in any event, the state is resisting testing, and that's what has led to Rodney Reed's lawsuit to try to force the state to do that testing. And it's the latest in the line of cases where there's a person who's claiming innocence and there's some evidence trending in that direction that has gotten the attention of people beyond just the legal community. Yeah, it sort of echoes the case against Adnan Syed that's gotten so much attention. So this is a federal civil rights claim? That's right. So what happened is this. In trying to get DNA testing, Rodney Reed pursued that claim in the state court, but that claim was denied at the trial court level and then up through the state criminal appeals court. And so after that denial, Rodney Reed then filed a federal civil rights claim challenging 
the denial on the state level, saying that those state processes violated his due process. And so that's the crux of his federal claim. The problem is that Texas is saying that he waited too long to bring the claim. So the question at the Supreme Court is when the statute of limitations starts to run for a federal claim that state DNA testing procedures violated due process. Does it start to run when the state trial court denies testing? Or does it start to run when the state appeals process has played out? And so it's this very technical sort of question that one might be tempted to get lost in, but it's a crucial question. The answer could depend on whether Rodney Reed and others who are claiming innocence can get DNA testing in these types of cases. So Reed says the clock starts at the end of state court litigation denying crime scene evidence testing, including appeals, while Texas officials say it starts when the state trial court denies testing. How much of a difference in time is there in his case between those two? So we're talking about months or years, depending on which aspect of the dispute, because it's broken up in in an even more detailed way than that, because there are different sub-arguments to it. But the bottom line is that the difference could mean months or years, depending on how long the appeal takes to play out, because there's also this whole sub-issue of if it does end when the state appeals process ends, does it end when the state high court denies or after they deny rehearing on top of that? So there's a whole other side issue even to the issue that's technical on its face in the first instance. But the bottom line is that Reed needs his test to be the one that wins for him to be able to get DNA testing. Was there any talk at all during the oral arguments about the fact that he claims he's innocent and the DNA test could possibly clear him? It's hard to see why you wouldn't give someone a DNA test. Right. So in terms of kind of the reality of the case, that wasn't the subject of the argument, and that's often the case at the Supreme Court. Nonetheless, there was a significant amount of practical discussion just in terms of the question of why would the state's test make sense as opposed to Reed's test making sense. Reed's lawyer certainly did mention the innocence aspect during the argument, but there wasn't really this straight-up question posed to Texas of why don't you just do the testing. They're really focused more on the technical issue, as is often the case at the court. The chief justice didn't seem particularly sympathetic to Reed's claim. So the chief justice brought up an interesting issue, which Texas brought up too, which is that if Reed wins under his proposed test, that that could cause other people bringing claims to suffer, meaning that if the rule is as Reed says, which is that you need to wait until your state appeals court process is done, then that would then prevent people who want to bring their claims earlier in the process when Texas is saying they have to bring them by. So the logic is basically Reed could win his claim here, but if he's successful, even if he could get DNA testing, then that would in theory hurt people who are trying to get DNA testing earlier in the process. That, that's the general point that Roberts brought up and that Texas argued as well. Did you see the court split in certain ways? Did you see justices on either side? I definitely saw justices on both sides of the issue. For example, Justice Thomas seemed the most likely to vote with the state. His 
question to both sides was the same, which was what liberty interest was Reed even deprived of in the first instance and who deprived him of it. So really this kind of threshold question, which he suggested the answer to it was a negative one for Reed, meaning if you can't get past that, then Justice Thomas is unlikely to side with Reed. But he was kind of on his own with that. Most of the justices were more so grappling with the crux of the issue that was presented in the case. But I really didn't get a sense that there was a majority coalescing around any particular answer to this question, at least at the argument. So it's another one of these where we're going to have to wait and see. I do think that Reed has a shot, although you really never know at the court, because the way that I look at this case, we're talking about a death row inmate, and the court has been very skeptical of claims coming from death row. So even though there was some support for Reed at the argument, including from Justice Barrett in some ways, she was seemingly agreeing with at least part of his claim, which could be a good sign for him. For one thing, that would only get him potentially to four justices when he would need five. And even then, you just don't really know. So I do think Reed needs to get over that 6-3 hurdle. I think that that's possible in the case, but we just won't know until we have the decision. So explain to me what kind of liberty interest was Thomas looking for? Isn't it a liberty interest to have a fair trial? Right. So to kind of back up with that, and again, the interest is the denial of testing and the the fact that the state process was unfair from Reed's view. That's the crux of his claim, and that the person who was doing the denial, which is also an important part of Thomas's point, the question of who exactly is depriving him of that interest. In this case, Reed is suing the district attorney who controls the evidence that could be tested. So that's a little bit more of a potentially interesting question just in terms of who is the one depriving someone of that right. Again, this is really something that Thomas was kind of off on his own with and I think is unlikely to dominate the decision, at least based on the argument. So that's really the issue there that Thomas was getting at. To go beyond the oral arguments for a moment, Reed is also pointing to an alternative perpetrator, the victim's husband, who was a police officer at the time. Reed has brought evidence forth saying that the police officer knew about an affair that Reed was having with the victim. And this becomes a bit of a he said, he said, although there is evidence from others supporting it now. But really, it's a matter of new evidence coming forth and looking at it in a new way, which often happens in the post-conviction context, not just potentially absolving Reed, but pointing the finger at this alternative perpetrator, Jimmy Fennell, the former police officer who, I should add, was later convicted after being charged with sexual assault of a woman on duty in a case unrelated to this one. So that's something else that Reed is pointing to. So the facts sort of scream out here, but it's a it's a technical issue for the Supreme Court. Exactly. It's going to come down to this technical issue in a way that I think is fairly understandable compared to some of the cases that the justices are usually taking on, but nonetheless still potentially obscures an even more significant issue hiding behind it. So you've covered a lot of these cases involving death row inmates. And are the justices, the conservative justices perhaps, concerned that inmates are just trying to postpone their executions? That's certainly what they've said in a number of cases. And that issue 
I wouldn't say that that dominated this argument, but it did come up, even if it wasn't really directly relevant. And that in itself shows how much of a concern it is from part of the court and from a state like Texas. And so, as I see it, in any case being brought by a death row prisoner, that's the hurdle that they need to get around, no matter what the question presented is in a case, whether it's statute of limitations or something else. I think in reality, that is what is driving a majority of the court in these cases. And so, in this case, someone like Reed needs not just really to prevail on the legal issue in his case, but to convince the court that he's not just doing something in a sort of untoward or underhanded way in the majority's view. Also on Tuesday, the majority rejected an unrelated Texas death row appeal. Tell us about that. Sure. That was the case of Andre Thomas. That was another death row case from Texas, as you said. And so that was a petition that the court denied over dissent from the three Democratic appointees, Sotomayor, Kagan, and the new Justice Jackson filling in there for Justice Breyer. So you see that split continue. And the issue there was a matter of jury bias that the jurors in this case it freely came out that they were opposed to interracial relationships and the defendant in the case was black and the victim was white. I should say that that's the same dynamic that was at play in the Reed case as well, although the racial issue was not squarely presented in Reed. Uh, Still, the Supreme Court wound up denying this petition over dissent. As usual, the court doesn't give a reason for the denial, but in the three-justice dissent written by Sotomayor, she said courts have a duty to confront racial animus in the system and lamented that the court didn't do something with this case. So, Jordan, are there other death row inmate cases coming up this term? There isn't any one case that I think is really being watched in that way. But the thing about these death penalty cases is that they're often coming up on the emergency docket or the shadow docket, as it's called. So a lot of times what's prompting a case to come to the Supreme Court is the setting of an execution date. And so there certainly are execution dates that are set across the country. We've seen we've seen that kind of schedule fill up, especially as the pandemic has waned and some executions have been postponed, especially on the state level. So that's really what I think is going to be driving this litigation. Anytime that there's an execution set, you can expect litigation coming up to the court on a quick basis, although that's not necessarily something that's forecasted ahead of time. And so people like myself just have to be ready for that. So, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but it seems to me just looking generally at the cases as they come up that usually the death row inmate fails. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. Sometimes the question, to my mind, is really, is there even going to be a dissent in the case? And Mm -hmm. so it's certainly, I think, an uphill battle for any claim coming from death row for reasons that we discussed earlier about the court seeing death row inmates as simply wanting to delay the inevitable as opposed to raising a meritorious legal claim. Thanks so much, Jordan. That's Bloomberg Law's Jordan Rubin. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 
5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It's the first seditious conspiracy trial over the January 6th Capitol riot, the most serious charge to emerge. Prosecutors say five members of the right-wing militia group, the Oath Keepers, planned an armed rebellion on January 6th. They allege that founder Stuart Rhodes led the conspiracy that started with calls to reject the election outcome, including an appearance on InfoWars. It's, it's either President Trump is encouraged and, and bolstered strengthened to do what he must do, or we wind up in a, in a bloody fight. We all know that. The fight's coming. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. They're charged with seditious conspiracy, and prosecutions for seditious conspiracy are pretty rare. So tell us about that. Well, they are rare. And, uh, you know, historically, they have focused on attempts by certain groups, certain individuals attempting to overthrow the government. But the seditious conspiracy statute doesn't require that. In fact, the theory that the government is pursuing here is that the Oath Keepers, including Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, agreed, entered into an agreement, a conspiracy to use force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of the laws of the United States, specifically involving the peaceful transfer of of power. So critical to the government's case, it has to prove this element of agreement. They have to prove that two or more individuals agreed to use force, again, to prevent, delay the peaceful transfer of power from then-President Trump to President-elect Biden. And I think that there, there is compelling evidence to that effect including the words of Stuart Rhodes and other defendants. So they're using their own words against them, specifically kind of encrypted communications during real time, you know, on January 6th and prior leading up to January 6th, where they're making some very incriminating statements regarding their efforts, their intentions to block this transfer of power from one president to the next. You also have, and this image has been in my mind since January 6th, you have the Oath Keepers moving in stacked military formation in full-on gear, 
and, uh, you know, and moving together through that whole crowd. But what about the fact that Stuart Rose and a couple of the others stayed outside? Yeah. What's really interesting about conspiracy law is that the conspiracy doesn't have to be successful. The plan doesn't even have to be a good plan, an effective plan. It's enough if two or more individuals agree to violate the law. And so even though Stuart Rhodes himself did not breach, go into the Capitol building, that's not necessary. It's not necessary to prove that in order to support a conviction for conspiracy. It's the agreement. It's the understanding. It's the planning that is the heart, the center of the conspiracy charge here. So it's no no defense, really, that, well, he didn't, you know, breach the Capitol. He wasn't part of this stacked group of Oath Keepers that entered into the Capitol. He could still be convicted for conspiracy despite that. So the defense has argued that there was no plan to attack the Capitol. They went to D.C. to provide security for some events, and they were preparing for orders from Trump, which never came. It's an interesting defense, and I don't think it's going to be a successful one. And so apparently the claim is, well, we went to Washington, D.C., we transported firearms and ammunition, other weapons, for the purpose of preventing the peaceful transfer of power. But we were waiting for the president to give us the green light to proceed. And we never got the green light from the president to proceed. Well, that's still not going to be a defense. If they had the agreement, they had the intent to delay, again, hinder the application of the law, the enforcement of the law, then that's the crime. Uh, Whether or not they actually were successful in doing it, whether or not they actually received some instruction from the president to go forward and executing their plan, the fact that they had a plan, they agreed to the plan, is the thrust of the conspiracy charge, not the successful execution of the plan. So I don't think that defense is going to be successful in preventing their uh, conviction. His defense lawyer says that Stuart Rhodes plans to testify in his own defense. He is a graduate of Yale Law School, but there are so many things that he's going to have to explain away. Yeah, it's a very dangerous strategy. In most criminal cases, the vast majority of criminal cases, defense lawyers really advise their client to not take the stand. Because once they take the stand, then they open themselves up to cross-examination. And so I'm sure the DOJ lawyers are well prepared to cross-examine Stuart Rhodes. They have a good idea of what he's going to say, what his defense is going to be. And I'm sure they have prior conversations, tape recordings, etc., of what he said in the past that they're going to use to impeach his claim of, oh, I didn't have the intent, you know, to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. So it's a very, very dangerous strategy, and it actually could blow up in Stuart Rhodes' face and actually make it easier to convict him. So what's the hardest part of this case for the prosecution? Again, it's going to be the intent. Uh, you know, did they have actually have the intent? The, the, the defendants have claimed that, oh, this was just um, uh, boastful statements. This was First Amendment protected free speech. But the evidence clearly shows that it was more than that. For example, with respect to one of the the defendants, one of the Oath Keepers that that pled guilty to seditious conspiracy, there was evidence that he brought an an AR-15 rifle, a 9mm pistol, approximately 200 rounds of ammunition, body armor, a camouflaged uh, combat uniform, pepper spray, all to the the Washington, D.C. area. 
And so to suggest, oh, well, we didn't have the intent to engage in violence to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, that is uh, contradicted by this evidence of bringing, you know, lethal weapons, 200 rounds of ammunition. That wasn't for a peaceful protest. That wasn't for simply exercising one's First Amendment right to challenge and protest against the government. This is evidence of an intent to engage in violent conduct. What do you think of the defense using Donald Trump and saying, we were waiting for him to invoke the Insurrection Act? We were waiting for orders from him that never came? Well, part of it doesn't make sense because the Insurrection Act basically um, uh, provides the, the, the president with the authority to deploy the U.S. military domestically to suppress an insurrection or, re- or rebellion. So again, to deploy U.S. military forces or to uh, deploy the state militia, which would be the, the state National Guard. There's nothing in the Insurrection Act, any of the provisions of the Insurrection Act, that would apply to a private militia such as the Oath Keepers. It just doesn't apply to that situation. And for him to say, for, for Stuart Rhodes to say, oh, somehow that would have legitimately our action for the president to invoke the Insurrection Act against this private militia when the Insurrection Act doesn't apply to private militias, it just, it's just not a very compelling, persuasive argument. It just doesn't appear that, that the Insurrection Act applies to private militia in the first instance. So, Jimmy, I look at this. They did all this planning, and yet they have tapes. They have so much so much evidence that they created themselves, tapes and pictures and selfies. I, I just, what were they thinking? Well, I mean, that, that's the, you know, the, crim- the, the fact that, that criminals are caught, they're arrested, they're prosecuted. It's not because they're smart. I mean, it's very often it's they uh, they they think that they that they they're the smartest person in the room. They think that they can get away with what they're doing. But but here there's such a strong uh, trail of evidence, admissions by the different defendants. You know, caught on tape, their own words. I mean, they're they're likely to be convicted by their own words and their own conduct. You know, typically in criminal cases, it's going to be other witnesses that are going to testify as to what they saw and the right witnesses and so on. Here it looks like the defendants could be convicted based upon their own words, their own admissions, their own conduct, the bringing of weapons, the storing of weapons in the D.C. area to be used later uh, to challenge again to to uh, to participate in this uh, act of, uh, of insurrection. So I think that they have a very, very tough task ahead to try to convince the jury of their innocence despite their own words that, that, that really speak to the contrary. Is there a lesser included charge if the jury does not find seditious conspiracy? Well, you know, keep in mind, that's not the only charge. So seditious conspiracy is, a, is the principal charge. It's the most serious charge, and it carries a penalty of up to 20 years. But they've also been charged with obstruction of an an official proceeding and uh, conspiracy to prevent uh, D.C. officers from discharging their, you know, Capitol Police from discharging their duties. So even if somehow the defendants were to prevail, there'd be a reasonable doubt on the suspicious, seditious conspiracy charge. There are two other 
felony charges that they're facing as well, and that the jury could could uh, end up uh, finding them liable for. Uh, and it was well. So it could be all three charges or maybe seditious conspiracy or maybe one or both of the other two charges as well. So how high are the stakes for the government to get the conviction on seditious conspiracy? The last time there was a conviction on seditious conspiracy was nearly 30 years ago against the Islamic militants who plotted to bomb New York City landmarks. So it's been a while. There's a lot of pressure. There's no question. There's a lot of pressure on the DOJ prosecutors. I mean, if they fail, if the jury were to come back and acquit these individuals, then it's certainly going to give a lot of fuel to the critics of the Biden administration, the critics of DOJ, the critics of the FBI, that these were all trumped up charges, that this was an overreach by the Department of Justice. In effect, it would kind of lend legitimacy, if you will, to the actions taken on January 6th. Oh, look, they're not criminal. If they were criminal, then these individuals would have been convicted. And it's going to give an argument to really kind of minimize the seriousness of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Thanks, Jimmy. That's Professor Jimmy Garule of Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.